Welcome. Uh, welcome to all of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God and hear his word. I invite you to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 27, uh, all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 54. John 4, 27 through 54. Let's hear God's word together. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, and a Samaritan woman, we might add. Uh, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left the, her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told, them all, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, uh, we rejoice to acknowledge that you are Lord of lords and King of kings. You are sovereign over all. And our lives are not at the mercy of impersonal forces or evil men and women. Uh, our destiny is firmly in your hands, Lord. And in that we rejoice and take comfort this morning. But even as we acknowledge you as our king, we pray that every aspect of our lives would be increasingly conformed to your, to your will and authority. Uh, grant, Lord Jesus, that if there are places in our hearts and lives where we are resisting your will, that these would be exposed by your word and spirit, and that you'd give us grace to repent for your glory and our good. Lord Jesus, we ask that you make yourself known to us today. 
uh, our hearts hunger and thirst for you. They hunger and thirst for your grace. And we we pray that you would make that abundantly known. Speak to us through your word, we ask. Amen. Uh, there is a general recognition that life is short and shouldn't be wasted. That's a general observation that people would accept. Uh, when I was in high school, senior year of high school, I had an English teacher uh, who had us read Carpe Diem poetry. Carpe Diem is Latin for seize the day. And there is the outer limit of my Latin. Uh, but but I, a friend and I, uh, a good friend of mine, my best friend uh, in that t- season of my life, would, would say that to each other. Those are slogans, senior year. Carpe Diem, seize the day. You know, make something of your life. Live with intentionality. And of course, that's a good thing. But it's one thing to acknowledge that we should seize the day and live with intentionality. It's another thing, though, to explain precisely what it means to live with intentionality. Like, what does it involve to seize the day? Like, what, what is meant by that? What, what do we as Christians uh, say seizing the day for Christ looks like? Uh, this passage that we're looking at this morning helps us to answer that question helps us to define what it means to live with purpose and intentionality. Uh, This passage reveals to us what is central to our Lord Jesus Christ, what drove his life, and it reveals what should be central to our lives and should drive our lives. Specifically, we will look at three things, the inevitable three. Uh, The first thing uh, that we will notice is the thing that satisfies Jesus. Number one, the thing that satisfies Jesus. Number two, the arrival of the harvest, and number three, the need to accept Jesus on his terms, not ours. So, what satisfied Jesus? The first thing we need to note is that we are looking at the sequel uh, to the passage that we looked at last week. Uh, Last week, we saw how Jesus and his disciples uh, left the region of Judea and started heading north to Galilee. But to get there, they had to go through the region of Samaria. Uh, Samaritans were, were not uh, pure blood Drew- Jews, and there was this tension between Jews and Samaritans that we looked at. Well, they get to this town called Sychar, and Jesus' disciples go into the town to buy some food. Jesus is resting by a well when a Samaritan woman shows up, and he sparks up a conversation with her. And in the course of that conversation, Jesus offers her the gift of the Holy Spirit, and he exposes some of the moral mess in her past. Of course, uh, Jesus had never met this woman before, and the fact that he knew about that moral mess revealed to her that he was a prophet. And the climax of their conversation is this moment where Jesus looks at the woman and he says, I'm the Christ. Uh, And it's precisely at that moment that the disciples come back with the food. Uh, And they are surprised that Jesus is talking to this Samaritan woman because, as we noted last week, this was a breach of social convention. Uh, Jewish men did not, as a rule, speak to Samaritan women. There was a hostility between the two groups, as we saw. So why is he doing this? But notice John tells us, no one said, so none of the disciples said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? Why did John include that tidbit? Uh, And I think it's because the disciples knew that they should trust in their Lord even when they didn't understand what he was doing. Even when they were surprised by what Jesus was doing, they knew to trust him even when they didn't understand. And that, I think, provides a model for us as disciples of Christ, as followers of Christ. There are going to be moments when we don't understand what our Lord is doing, when what he does surprises us. 
And in those moments when we don't understand, we defer to him. We say, Lord, you know, and I trust you. So the disciples come on the scene. Uh, They're surprised by this conversation with the woman, but they don't bring it up. And then the woman, having spoken to Jesus, uh, leaves and goes back to her town in her excitement to tell others about Jesus. We're told that she left her jar right there by the well. And that, may, that detail may indicate her excitement. Uh, she was engaged in this very mundane activity uh, to get water. And who met her at the well? Jesus. And now she has something more important, much more important to do than simply fill uh, that jar with water. She has good news to share with other people in her town. So she dashes back to her town and starts telling people about Jesus. Could this be the Christ? Could this be the Messiah? And so the Samaritans start to come to Jesus. They start trickling in. And as this is happening, Jesus speaks to his disciples. Uh, They urge him, uh, Messiah, no, perhaps that's premature. Rabbi is the word that they use. Teacher, uh, they say, "Uh, why don't you eat some of the food that we've gotten? Uh, We went into town, we have this food, why don't you eat? And he says, I have food that you're not aware of. And and this causes a conversation amongst them. Uh, Who brought him food? Uh, Which one of us? Now, it's intriguing to note that, this is, that the disciples of Jesus respond very much like the woman did, the Samaritan woman. When Jesus is speaking to her of living waters, which, by which he is referring to the Holy Spirit, she takes him to be referring to literal water. And the disciples respond in a similar way. They think Jesus is speaking literally, so they wonder who brought him food. Like every other response of the disciples in the Gospels is a bit like this. Jesus says something and they misunderstand. That should be encouraging to us, I think. Spiritual maturity takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. And Jesus is patient with his followers as he instructs them and corrects them. So in this instance, he tells them uh, that the food that satisfies him and delights in him is to do the will of God. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What do we eat? Uh, We eat for strength, uh, to recuperate the, the loss of strength in our work. And we eat for satisfaction, for relief from hunger. And you know what Jesus is saying to us? My deepest relief, my deepest satisfaction comes from obeying the Father. Doing his will is what nourishes me deep in my soul. And of course, the heart of the Father's will for the Son is to save sinners. Jesus came into the world so that men and women who don't know God, who are dead in their sins and trespasses, might come to know God. And the bread or the food that satisfies the soul of our Lord Jesus Christ is bringing the lost to God. You want to know what energized Jesus, what motivated him, what he strove for in his life? It's this, bringing men and women to God, just like he'd been doing with the Samaritan woman, uh, speaking to her about the Holy Spirit. And it's this passion for seeing men and women brought to God that will ultimately lead our Lord Jesus Christ to the cross. It is because he desires the salvation of sinners like us that he will ultimately bear the judgment of God at the cross so we can be reconciled to God. But we should note carefully that our Lord Jesus Christ didn't just delight in and desire the salvation of sinners then. That continues to be his heart for us even today as he reigns at the right hand of God in glory and power. Uh, After his resurrection, Jesus didn't you know, forget all about us as he ex- experienced heaven's joys. Now, even in heaven and in glory, the will of our Lord Jesus Christ is for sinners to know God and for his people to be preserved until that final day when they go to be with him. 
He desires the salvation of his people from A to Z. He desires their conversion for them to be brought in and their preservation. He wants to bring in new sheep to the flock and preserve the old sheep until they make it safely home. That's our Lord's heartbeat for us. Uh, The reformer John Calvin, commenting on these verses, made this observation. Christ's office is well known. It was to restore lost souls to life, to bring salvation to the world. The importance of these things made him forget about eating and drinking. Yet we derive from this no ordinary comfort as we see that Christ was so concerned about man's salvation that it gave him the greatest delight to bring it about. We cannot doubt that he has similar feelings toward us now. So John is showing us the heart of Christ, which is to bring sinners to God. And Calvin is saying, recognize that that continues to be the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ, even in glory. His heart continues to beat for our salvation. He continues, as it were, to hunger and thirst for the consummation of our redemption. And he says that should encourage us. In those moments of temptation and failure, when our faith wavers, we need to remember that we have one in heaven who is fighting for us. It's not just that he acted in the past to save us. He continues to act in the present to save us. And he does this especially by interceding for us in the presence of the Father. As our high priest in the very presence of God, he continues to plead our case with the Father. He continues to pray for our preservations. Hebrews 7.25, speaking of Jesus, he says, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What does he live to do? Jesus lives to intercede for his people in the presence of the Father. He continues to think about us even in glory and work for our salvation. Uh, Robert Murray McShane describes the way in which that truth should encourage us. He says, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. If you heard Jesus praying for you by name in the uh, next room, what would that do to you? Presumably that would encourage you, that would strengthen you, that would make you feel like I can fight and triumph. But understand that that is happening. Perhaps not in the next room, but in the very presence of God. And that truth should stir us on when we feel like we're losing heart in our walk with the Lord. We should press on knowing that we have a Savior in heaven. Second thing then to notice in this passage is that the harvest has arrived. So Jesus tells them about this food, uh, this delight he has in doing the will of the Father. And then in verse 35, Jesus transitions and, uh, and tells them to look and see that the harvest has come. He says, you guys are thinking of the harvest as something in the future. In four months' time, the harvest is going to happen. But I want to tell you, the harvest is here, and the fields are ripe for reaping. Uh, Of course, Jesus is here speaking metaphorically, uh, not about the literal harvest, but spiritually. As these Samaritans are coming to him, he's drawing the attention of his disciples and saying, here there is this spiritual harvest, and now is the time to be collecting these souls and drawing them to God to eternal life. Uh, You think of it as something future, but I want to tell you the harvest, the spiritual harvest is here. 
Uh, already, the one who reaps is reaping and he's receiving his re reward. Already, souls are being brought to God. The harvest is here. And I'm going to send you into the harvest to reap what you didn't work for. Other people work for it, but you are going to profit from their work and you are going to reap souls for the glory of God and their eternal good. Now, when it comes to understanding what Jesus is saying in these verses, we can go basically in one of two directions. Uh, we could interpret this very narrowly and specifically in terms of the immediate context. And in that, in that case, harvest refers to the Samaritans. Uh, the Samaritans who are coming to Jesus, that's the spiritual harvest. And the sowers on that reading would refer to like Jesus and the woman who prepared the ground for the disciples to connect with these Samaritans. Uh, they would be the sowers. Uh, that's possible. But, but I think there is something more general in view. Jesus is not simply describing what's happening with the Samaritans. He is describing that th there is a new stage in salvation history. Uh, his description of the harvest is, of course, triggered by the Samaritans. Uh, they are coming to him, but he's saying something actually much bigger. He's saying that the time for gathering God's people from all the nations of the earth has arrived. Uh, the Old Testament, if you like, has been the time of sowing, the time of preparation. Uh, on this reading, sowers would refer to the prophets who came before Jesus, uh, ultimately climaxing in the ministry of John the Baptist. This was a preparatory uh, ministry pointing people to Jesus. But now the time of reaping has come. The time of the harvest, the time where, where God's people are going to be gathered into the church has come. There is a new era, a new stage of salvation history where God is bringing his people in. A couple of reasons for thinking that this is what Jesus is saying. Uh, first of all, uh, notice in verse 38 that Jesus uh, speaks to his disciples as uh, those who have been sent to reap, past tense. Right? The implication is that they've already been commissioned to reap in the harvest even before they came to Samaria, with the implication that the harvest is actually bigger than just the immediate context. In addition, notice the emphasis on time. It's not simply that Je Jesus uses a generic metaphor for bringing people to God, right? just speaking of a general harvest. Notice he says, you're thinking in terms of future, but the harvest is here now. Already this is happening. And that emphasis on time suggests that Jesus is thinking in terms of salvation history. The time of sowing and preparation is now giving way to this great harvest where God is bringing his people in. And we need to recognize that that was the time in which the disciples lived, and that's the time in which we now live. Jesus Christ, our Lord, died for our sins, rose again, and now reigns in glory. And what is he doing prior to his second coming? He is pouring out his Holy Spirit on the church to empower its witness to bring people in. That's what he's doing. He is drawing a people for himself, hence the Great Commission. Right? When he is resurrected, he tells his disciples that they are to go in the world and make disciples. And the Spirit is poured out at Pentecost for what purpose? To empower the church's witness. That's what Jesus is doing prior to his second coming. That's the time in which we live, the time of the harvest. So what implications might that have for our priorities now? If God is in the business of drawing people to himself through the witness of the church and building them up in their faith, how should that affect our priorities? How should that affect how we live? 
Well, at a most fundamental level, it ought to cause us to stop being self-focused and increasingly intentional about the way that we can use our resources and abilities uh, and opportunities to move others towards Jesus Christ. We are called to work with God, as it were, to be on the same mission as God in bringing people to himself. Is that the priority of your life? Is that what governs the use of your time and money? Is that what excites you? Seeing people come to know the Lord and growing in the Lord. Here's how the authors of Trellis and the Vine put it. God has a plan that will determine the destiny of every person and nation in the world. And it is unfolding here and now as the gospel of Christ is preached and the Holy Spirit is poured out. Is there anything more vital to be doing in our world? It is time to say goodbye to our small and self-oriented ambitions and to abandon ourselves to the cause of Christ and his gospel. In other words, the, the passion of our heart should be how can I use my resources and what God has given to me to advance his kingdom and his work in the world. My, my passion should be uh, to see people come to know Jesus and to grow in Jesus Christ. This should affect every area of life. When it comes to using our money, uh, we shouldn't be asking simply, what's the next big purchase that I want? We should be asking, how can I use surplus income for the kingdom? How can I use some of these resources, these financial resources, to help more people know Jesus? When it comes to the use of our time, we shouldn't just look at our weekends and go, great. Two days to myself, I can binge watch that Netflix show that I've been waiting to watch all week. Uh, yeah, there's a place for using our time for refreshment. That's okay. Uh, but we should also be asking, how can I use free time? How can I leverage that for the kingdom? Could I invite my neighbors over for the sake of engaging them in spiritual conversation? What about my work? How can I work in such a way that people will see the greatness of Christ? How can I be more excellent in what I do so my unbelieving coworkers will see Jesus is great given what he's doing in this person's life? There needs to be a level of intentionality in every aspect of our, our lives where we are consistently asking, how can I use this resource or whatever to advance the mission of Christ? Is that your heartbeat? Is that your passion? Many ways, we ought to be like the Samaritan woman. She's a fine example of a reaper in the age of the harvest. Uh, no, notice, there isn't like a, her local church has an evangelism training program. And then she understands her responsibility before God to share Jesus with others. So she goes back to her town dutifully and tells other people about Jesus. It's not what happens. She talks to Jesus and she's excited about the Lord. And she can't help talking about him to others. You inevitably talk about the things you love. If you love Jesus Christ and you delight in him, nobody's going to have to tell you to talk about Jesus to your neighbors. You're going to do that as the overflow of your delight and your commitment to him, just like the Samaritan woman. But she's like a model of what life ought to be like in many ways during this time of the harvest. Intentionality about pointing other people to Jesus. This should be our bread as it was for Christ. Like what, what is more satisfying in the world than seeing the Holy Spirit use you to help move other people towards Jesus? To be able to look back on your life and say, by the grace and mercy of God, he used even me to touch these lives so that they would know Christ and grow in Christ. That should be our food as well, even as it was for Christ. That should be our passion and delight. Now, this, if this is all somewhat new for you, this, level, this kind of intentionally uh, drawing people to Jesus and, and following Jesus by helping people, helping others to follow him, if this is new, uh, what I would say is start in your home. 
That's the first place to begin making disciples. Take baby steps there. Uh, Share scripture with your spouse. Share scripture with your children. Pray with your kids. Help the members of your household to grow bit by bit in Christ. Start there and then start doing that uh, outwardly. If that's uncomfortable for you, if you have no category for doing that, uh, I'd love to talk specifics. Uh, You have no excuse. I'm available. Elders are available. Whatever else we want to talk to you about, we'd love to talk to you about that. So by all means, talk to us. Read a book. Ignorance is not an excuse. We we are here to equip you to do that, so speak to us. But by all means, uh, respond to this call to go into the harvest and reap for the glory of God and the eternal good of others. That's the time we're living in. The time of the harvest has come. Final thing to note then, especially in this uh, interaction between Jesus and the official. Uh, Final thing to note is that we come to Jesus on his terms, not ours. So, the Samaritans uh, have believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony, but then having heard the words of Christ, we're told then they believe because of him. It's not enough just to hear about Jesus from others, important as that might be. At some point, we also need to have a personal encounter with Jesus by faith. At some point, we need to not simply hear about him. We need to place our trust in him. And the result of Jesus' ministry among the Samaritans is that they declare he's the savior of the world, which is an amazing statement. One that you, don't, you haven't heard so far, even among the Jews. Like The response to Jesus among the outsiders, the Samaritans, has been far more positive than among even the Jews. And it's, that's probably what Jesus has in mind when Jesus uh, says in verse 44, Jesus himself has testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. He's implicitly contrasting his experience among the Samaritans with what his experience will be among his own people. They've responded enthusiastically. The response of the Galileans is going to be much less enthusiastic. But I want you to look carefully at verse 44 and 45 and notice attention. Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Therefore, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. When you go to your hometown, no honor. Goes to his hometown, and they welcome him. Seems like a discrepancy. You shouldn't expect a welcome, and he gets a welcome. How do we understand that? We should ask that question. Like, what's the, what exactly is going on here? And the crucial thing to notice is the kind of welcoming the Galileans give Jesus. Notice that their welcoming is further characterized in this way. They welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. What had they seen? His miracles, his signs. And in that earlier context, John tells us that many people saw the miracles of Jesus and responded positively to those miracles without actually putting their saving faith in Christ himself. John 2, 23 and 24. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Uh, despite the fact that what their response to Jesus is described as faith, it's something other than and less than saving faith. They are attracted to the miracles of Jesus, to the signs, but they don't see the thing to which the sign points, namely Jesus himself. So basically what we're being told here is that the Galileans are welcoming Jesus as a miracle worker 
not the Messiah, not the Savior of the world. They're attracted to his miracles and less to his person. And that's the framework uh, within which to make sense of the exchange between Jesus and the official. So Jesus comes back to Cana in Galilee. Uh, there's an official in Capernaum about 17 miles away whose son is about to die. And he's heard the, the rumors about Jesus that he has power to heal. And so this man comes to Jesus and asks that Jesus would come down with him to heal his son. And then Jesus says something to him that describes not just him, but actually all the Galileans. The word you in verse 48 is plural. It's not just you as an individual, but y'all, you all. We don't have a plural you in modern English, hence the need for clarification. Uh, verse 48, Jesus said to him, unless you, you all see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Jesus is saying, uh, not that if you, had this, if you had miracles, then you'd come to saving faith. That's not what he's saying. Uh, he's not describing the condition necessary for faith in him. He's describing their spiritual hardness of heart. He's saying that the thing that causes you to respond is not me, but the signs that I do. You're drawn to the signs, not to me. Those are the things that elicit a positive response, not who I am as the Messiah. And that verse 48 is a description of their spiritual condition. They're interested in what he can do for them with the miracles. They're not interested in him as the Messiah. And, but the official is persistent. He says, come down and heal my child. So Jesus says, go, your son will live. It's an interesting response. Uh, because what did the man ask Jesus to do? Come back with me and heal the son. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to heal him from a distance. And you have to take my word that he's going to be healed. Notice, Jesus is not giving him a sign. He doesn't know if he's, the, the son has been healed or not. Jesus is challenging this obsession with miracles and saying, are you going to trust my word? Are you going to take me at my word when I say that your son is healed? And we're told, yes, the man believes Jesus as his word, at his word. And when he comes uh, close to home, he discovers that uh, the, his son was healed right around the time that Jesus pronounced the healing. And he and his family placed their faith in Jesus Christ. But what Jesus does is he challenges the man to look not at the miracles, but to look at him and to trust who he is as God's king. And that's the, that's the challenge for all of us today. Are we approaching Jesus for what he can give us? Right? Are we using Jesus as a means to some end? Are we trying to further our agenda through Jesus? Or are we coming to him on his terms and acknowledging him unconditionally as Lord? Are you using Jesus to get what you want? Or are you acknowledging Jesus as Lord over your life and your aim in all things is to please him? This is a crucial question to ask. There are many people who can be attracted to Jesus for a season when things are going hard, when they need the miracle working Jesus in their life. Uh, sometimes marriages begin to fall apart and it looks hopeless. You get bad news from the doctor and so people will come to church. They sense that they need help. They sense that they need Jesus and so they're, they're flocking to Jesus. But as soon as the marriage gets fixed, as soon as the illness goes away, so do they. They were never interested in submitting to Jesus as their king. They simply wanted to use Jesus to advance their agenda and get what they ultimately want. But once they get it, they have no more need for Jesus. Is that our approach? 
Or are we saying, Lord, it's not about my agenda or what I want. It's about what you want for me. What, what is important is that your will be done, not mine. Even as believers, we can fall into that trap of thinking that Jesus exists to help us fulfill all of our dreams and desires. Jesus is there to help me to be the best me or live the best life now or whatever it is. And when we find that a lot of our hopes and dreams don't come to fruition, we feel perhaps bitter and resentful towards Christ. Uh, Instead of coming to him on his terms as Lord overall, we're disappointed that he hasn't advanced our agenda. The challenge to all of us today is to unconditionally surrender to Christ and say, Lord, it's not fundamentally and primarily about what I want or what you uh, can do for me. I belong to you, and it's about your will being done in my life. Lord, I offer my heart promptly and sincerely in everything. That is the kind of response that honors Jesus Christ. That is how we rightly honor his lordship. May God help us to do that more and more. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would not be guilty of idolatry, of putting something else above you, and then seeking to use you to get that thing. We pray that you would be our highest and best good. We pray that we would desire no thing above you, and that our lives would be increasingly characterized by an unconditional surrender to you and obedience to you, Lord. Amen.